right, hello everybody. Welcome to another episode of Transfigured. This is a another episode in the Church Father series with Sam and Hank, and today we are doing Arius of Alexandria, the most famous heretic of all time. Um, I'm sure that some of our previous episodes uh, got us in a little bit of trouble, but I think that of all of the episodes so far, in many ways, this is probably one of the most important that we've done. Um, and also probably has even more potential to get some of uh, our, our loving fans uh, slightly angry with us, uh, depending on which direction we go. But, you know, I, I was thinking about this. I, I think I like our podcast because we are, I think, avoiding two extremes. One extreme is just sort of towing what you could say is the official party line or something like that and giving kind of the uh, most smoothed over and agreeable form of a telling of church history that helps support whichever denomination you want to be supporting. And then there's also sort of like the extreme that's opposite that of like debunking. Right, where it's like kind of like, I don't know, the Da Vinci Code or something like that, where you view everything through a lens of suspicion and everything is trying to overturn the official narrative and show how evil or bad or corrupt the church is. And I think on an episode like this, it's important to avoid both of those extremes as well. I think that the Aryan controversy is extremely misunderstood. I think that is very polemicized, and I think that very few people actually understand what Arius believed, why he believed it, and what the historical connections with that were. But I, I also don't want to just be like, oh, actually Arius was the hero all along, or something like that, because I, I think the truth is more complicated than that. Um, and so if anyone's, I don't know, coming to this episode for the first time, um, I'm a non-Trinitarian Christian, uh, what I call a biblical Unitarian Christian, but I am not non-Trinitarian in the sense that Arius is. I do not consider myself an Arian. I do not identify with Arianism. I view that as uh, an equally wrong theology as Trinitarianism. And Hank, do you want to say a little bit about your background too? Well, I'm a Orthodox Catholic Trinitarian. I'm the guy that burnt guys like Arius at the stake. <laughs> well, hey, or po way, poisoned Father, him on the toilet, yeah, but we'll get to yeah, that. Yeah. Father, <laughs> Father Big Max, take a look here now. I'm in the center. I hope that helps you. Okay. <laughs> so, Although, Hank, you should say that you were an evangelical Christian for a long time and then converted to Catholicism uh, in the last few correct. years. Correct, yes. I, yeah. um, in over the last three years have really started doing a deep dive into Trinitarian theology simply because really didn't understand it for 40 years as a, as a Christian, it just sort of, it was in the water that you swam in. So if you ask the fish, if they're wet, they say, what are you talking about? So this has been helpful to me. And I think that we, we need to have, three categories possibly, and maybe more, but we have what I would call Orthodox Trinitarian theology, meaning it, it, then you have Arianism, which is completely different, is somewhat a lot different than biblical Unitarianism. And so the, the issue with Arius 
it's just not a lot of writing because Constantine, Emperor Constantine, offered, basically said burn all his writings. Yeah. Okay. What we have and, and, and when he was particularly mad at him, we will see that Arius yeah. goes from being on Emperor Constantine's good side to his bad side and back and forth a couple times. But one right. time when he was on Emperor Constantine's bad side, the emperor ordered all of his writings burnt. It's like and a mar- also, it's like a marriage. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a marriage. Okay, yeah. good side, bad side. Okay, am I sleeping on the couch? Oh, I'm not sleeping on the couch. So yeah, I, uh, um. One of the other things we should discuss is that a lot of the, and we'll discuss Arius's life in a moment. Most of the 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 upheaval was in North, what we call North Africa, Libya, Egypt, what we call the Middle East: Turkey, Israel, Lebanon, Syria. Syria, yeah. Okay, so this is not a. I'm a the West, meaning Spain, Italy, France, they weren't really involved in it too much. A little, maybe a little of the Greeks were involved, but not really. It was really a North African, um, uh, North African, uh, Middle Eastern, what we call uh, disagreement, because that's where the intellectual center of Christianity was. Whether it was at the, the whether it was in Alexandria, or whether it was in Antioch. So um, Arius' life seems to have started, uh, he he was born around 256 in modern-day Libya. He died Kind of near uh, Benghazi, actually. If you were to look on a map, uh, the closest city probably to where Arius was born is Benghazi. Don't tell Hillary Clinton. Oh, yeah. Probably uh, Hillary Clinton's least favorite theologian would be Arius then. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. Um, And then he died in Constantinople. In 336. Mm-hmm. So, given where he died, he was he must have been in fairly good standing because that's where the center of the empire was, and that's where, where... Well, we'll talk. We'll get to his death because that yeah. is a an important and interesting subject. But he also lived for a long time, right? Yeah, he was probably around 80 ish years old. We don't yep. know exactly when he was born, but we do know exactly when he died. Right. Um, so, I mean, for the first large chunk of his life, we know virtually nothing about him. You know, okay, so he was probably from Libya, almost certainly from Libya, born in the 250s. So that would have meant that in the 270s, the empire was in disarray, right? We've covered that in past episodes. Um, there was what's called the crisis of the third century, right? Famines, wars, um, emperors killing each other. Um, just sort of general chaos in the empire. It was probably one of the weakest points of the Roman Empire. So Arius would have been in his 20s, kind of, when that was happening. Um, We know that it's certainly easy to infer that Arius had a very good education. His Greek is impeccable. His, um, he seems to have been very well connected to other various well-educated bishops in the empire. He was probably taught by a guy named Lucian of Antioch. Lucian of Antioch was a bishop of Antioch in the late 200s and was one of the most scholarly, well-educated, and biblically well-informed people alive at the time. So if that was his teacher, it would certainly explain why uh, Arius had such 
a good education. And Arius also seems to have been very well, um, very influenced, I would say, and, and by uh, implication, very knowledgeable of Greek philosophy in his time too. So he probably had a very strong Christian education and a very strong philosophical, what you could say secular, I guess, education, even though secular isn't quite the right word. Um, so somehow that happened. We don't know quite where or when or with whom, but that, that seems to be in the background of Arius's story. And then in the 290s AD, the uh, Emperor Diocletian sort of is bringing this crisis of power and crisis of authority and chaos to an end and is sort of pulling the empire back together again. And one of his, uh, one of the ways that he tries to make Rome great again is to um, get rid of Christianity and really re-emphasize Rome returning to its religious roots and honoring the old pagan gods that had made Rome great. And that perhaps part of the reason why Rome was flailing is that there was a lapse in devotion to the uh, Roman gods. And so this brings about the Diocletian persecution, uh, which starts in 302. And it's considered to be the, the largest Christian persecution by the Roman Empire that there was in terms of sheer numbers and scale and intensity. Part of that is because Christianity has grown. Christianity might be around 10-ish percent of the empire, maybe even more by then. So there are probably a few million Christians in the world and at least a few hundred thousand something like that maybe a million maybe more in the roman empire so there's more christians to persecute than there used to be right back when nero was doing a persecution there was maybe a few thousand maybe ten thousand christians right now there's like a million so th there is what's uh the largest and most intense persecution and then Diocletian um, dies in 311. Diocletian had also instituted a new kind of form of government called the Tetrarchy, where there was an Augustus of the East and an Augustus of the West, and they each had a Caesar underneath them, right? Tetrarchy means rule of four, right? So there's two, an uh, Eastern boss, a Western boss, and then an Eastern subordinate and a Western subordinate. And one of those, I believe the Western subordinate was um, Constantine's father, Constantius, I think it was. I, I might be getting that wrong. But then when Constantine dies, there's this uh, melee battle <laughs> for who gets to be in charge. And um, Constantine the Great basically ends up winning this battle. And in 313 AD, uh, Constantine issues the Edict of Milan, which brings an end to the Christian persecution. And um, it doesn't make Christianity the official religion or any of those sorts of things. It just makes Christianity tolerated and ends the great Diocletian persecution. But also in 313 AD, in Alexandria, um, the Bishop of Alexandria at that time, a guy named Achilles, uh, dies. And then there is a election of who gets to be the new Bishop of Alexandria in 313 AD. And there are two leading candidates for who should be the Bishop of Alexandria appointed after the death of the old Bishop. And one of them is a guy named Alexander of Alexandria. And another of them is Arius. And so Arius at this point in time is, you know, a leading figure in his Alexandrian community and the sort of person who could be appointed bishop. 
but he is an appointed bishop. And there's some questions over whether that creates something of like a professional rivalry or a personal sense of, uh, I don't know, tension uh, between him and Alexander. Alexander is Arius's peer. We'll talk about Athanasius later. Most people imagine the, the Arian conflict as a battle between Arius and Athanasius, but Athanasius was something like 50 years younger than Arius. They, they weren't really peers. The uh, Arius's main peer and main rival was Alexander. Alexander was Athanasius's mentor, and Athanasius will become bishop after Alexander dies. But uh, Arius's main peer and main same-aged rival is this guy named Alexander of Alexandria. So I don't know if you had any kind of thoughts in in response to that, Hank, before we get moving on to more of the history. Well, I think the the, the main takeaway here will be that Alexandria was an upheaval. Yeah. And that has a lot to say about what what will happen with Arius. And it's interesting the sides that are formed over Arius and his interpretation of the Trinity. Yeah. So uh, a couple details about why Alexandria is a mess. So Alexandria is probably the second largest city in the empire at this time after Rome. And actually, at this point in time, it might even be the largest because Rome is sort of in decline, right? Um, the Diocletian sort of refocuses the energy and emphasis in the empire further east because during the crisis, um, uh, Rome was constantly being bothered by Persia, right? And there was also the Queen Zenobia affair that we talked about during the Paul Samosata episode, right? So Rome's greatest threat is on its eastern flank. And so Diocletian spends a lot of time in a city called Nicomedia and also a city called Ankara, which is the same. Ankara is still the capital of Turkey to this day. And, and so there's more attention of the emperors to spend more time in the east because Rome is not really where the action is, and it's kind of geographically inconvenient when the emperors are needing to put so much emphasis on guarding their eastern flank. So Rome is actually sort of declining in, in importance at this point in time. And of course, Constantine will move the capital from Rome to Constantinople, um, and, and that will cause Rome's population to greatly decline. So at this point in time, Alexandria might be just about the biggest, most important city in the empire. It's either first or second. And it also almost certainly has the largest Christian population in the empire at this point in time. Um, it had been an early source of Christianity, you know, right? Even Jesus probably spent some time in Alexandria when uh, Jesus's family flees to Egypt during Herod's reign of terror. Um, it's almost certain, it's not, maybe not certain, it's highly likely that Jesus and his family lived in Alexandria because that's where there was a large Jewish population. So Alexandria has had a long connection with Christianity. And so it probably has the largest Christian population of maybe 100,000 or more people in the city might be Christian at this point in time. It's hard, hard to know exactly. Um, but so during the Diocletian persecution, um, the, the Bishop of Alexandria had gone in hiding in Persia, 
right? Which was a relatively common thing for bishops to do during periods of an intense persecution is to, you know, get the heck out of Dodge because the bishops had a target on their head. But this causes a problem because then who's in, it's hard to govern your see from a distance. And so during that time, there were people who kind of acted unofficially as bishops and presbyters and clergy, and they might have ordained people and baptized people. And one of these people seems to have been named malicious. And, uh, and so there was this, uh, when, when the persecution ends, you know, there, th this is a pattern that we've seen over and over again. There, there are the Christians who bravely endured persecution, and there are the Christians who maybe lapsed under persecution or fled under persecution. And the Christians who endured the persecution are not always very happy to let the people who gave in under persecution to let them back into their churches because they view them as traitors. Actually, literally the word traitor comes from the Latin word for to hand over. And it's, uh, it's a person who, when the uh, persecutors came and asked for the Christian documents, asked for their scriptures and stuff, that they handed them over. So the Latin word actually, come, traitor, comes from someone who gave in under Christian persecution, right? And so there was kind of a, a small, maybe even a big schism in Alexandria at this time of the people who had stayed in Alexandria and bravely endured persecution, not wanting to let the other people in, right? And we've seen other schisms like this in the past, um, like the Novation Schism that we talked about a couple episodes ago was basically that same thing. Um, there's also a famous schism called the Donatist Schism that we'll talk about later, probably when we get to Augustine, that also was caused by the exact same pattern, right? The hardcore people not wanting the softies to come back into their church. So there's one of those sorts of schisms in Alexandria. And there are also a couple popular teachers that seem to have their own following and might be in schism or might kind of not be in schism, but they have some sort of centers of power. Um, let's see, there's some guy named, uh, what's his name, Hierakas, who was teaching a form of asceticism and might have been kind of a Gnostic who was a popular teacher in Alexandria at this time. So the... All of this to say the Alexandrian church is a mess, right? And there are multiple sources of tension. There are multiple kinds of diversity. And I would even say perhaps another kind of diversity and problem that it has is that Alexandria was a Greek-speaking city and that it was very metropolitan. It was a trade center. It was sort of like, I don't know, New York or something like that, right? Lots of boats coming in and out you know, lots of finance, lots of commerce, lots of interconnection with other parts of the empire and other parts of the world. But then there was the hinterland, and the hinterland didn't really speak Greek. The hinterland spoke Coptic, which is the ancient Egyptian language. And so I could imagine there also being something of a source of tension between people who had a cosmopolitan globalist identity um, and people who had a more nativist Egyptian identity. And uh, Arius would have certainly been a person who belonged to the cosmopolitan identity. Very well educated, traveled throughout the Greek empire, etc. Go ahead. Are you saying that Arius is the Karl Schwab of his day? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Arius was a globalist. Um, but, but, but seriously, though, he was a highly educated Greek-speaking person and um, not in the Egyptian by ethnicity. And some of the people who seem to have not liked him might have identified more with their Egyptian identity. 
right? We we did a episode on um, Anthony of the Desert, right? Who was the great Egyptian monastic? And Anthony of the Desert couldn't speak Greek; he could only speak Coptic, right? And he plays a minor role in the Arian controversy. Athanasius would often go and hide at his monastery when Athanasius was being persecuted. So it seems like Athanasius and maybe even also Alexander had a greater connection with the local Egyptian population, whereas Arius was more closely affiliated with sort of the urbanized, educated, Greek-speaking population. So there are all these sources of tension within the church. And you can imagine that this Bishop Alexander is trying to herd cats, right? He's trying to, now that the Edict of Milan has been issued, now that Christianity is entering a period of peace, he's trying to bring unity and order and uh, submission to Episcopal authority to the Alexandrian church, which, you know, is a perfectly understandable thing to want to do. Um, but in 318 A.D., Alexander gives a series of sermons that sort of emphasize his theology on the Trinity, which emphasizes a strong equality and co-eternality between God the Father and the Son, or the Logos. And Arius is like, hey, wait a minute, that's not right. The Father and the Son are not co-eternal. They're not co-equal. We'll get into Ari the full details of what we know about Arius' theology later. But Arius seems to have given a series of counter-sermons. And I should also say that at this point in time, Arius is a presbyter, which is basically the equivalent of a priest nowadays. And he was the presbyter of a church in sort of the main central district of the city, uh, the Bucalia district, and it was probably about the biggest and most important church in Alexandria, and it probably maybe had the relics of Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, and so it, it's like, it's like, Arius is like in that church downtown, right? The church with the tallest steeple that has the most prestigious, well-educated, and probably most affluent congregation, Right, so he, he's the priest at the most important church, which doesn't make him in charge, right, because he's not the bishop, but you can certainly imagine that he's a person of great influence. Um, and so there's now all of a sudden this tension between the Bishop Alexander and uh, this priest, Arius, who are disagreeing about the relationship of the father to the son, uh, basically. Um, and so this is sort of what I guess you could really call the beginning of the Arian controversy. Although it's not like there haven't been controversies or arguments between presbyters and bishops about theology in the past. And it's not entirely obvious at the beginning of this thing, all of the historical ramifications and implications it will have later. But uh, that that's sort of the beginning of it. Um, so... We, we don't have a ton of documents from this period, but we do have a document from about 318 AD that's right at the beginning of this. And this is Alexander, the Bishop of Alexandria, writing to other clergy underneath his jurisdiction. So it starts, Alexander to his assembled and beloved brethren, the priests and deacons of Alexandria, 
and the Mariortis. Greetings in the Lord. Indeed, you have already subscribed to the letter I addressed previously to Arius's supporters, in which I encouraged them to renounce his impiety and to them, submit themselves to the sound Catholic faith. You have shown your right commitment to and agreement with the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Yet since I have written also to our fellow ministers in every place concerning those supporting Arius, I decided that I needed to assemble you, the clergy of the city, and to send for you, the clergy of the Mariordis. I assume that the Mariordis is some region kind of nearby to Alexandria that's underneath his control. Um, I'll skip a little bit. Um, various people have joined themselves with the Aryan faction and devoted themselves to undergo destruction with them. You need to learn what I'm now writing and to testify your agreement to it and to vote together for the deposition of those supporting Arius and Pistis. For it is desirable that you understand what I write and that each of you have a heartfelt adherence to it as though each had written it himself. Right? So there's this theological disagreement. There is a faction that's agreeing with Arius. Arius isn't by himself. He has a bunch of people who are agreeing with him in this fight. But Alexander also has a bunch of people who are agreeing with him, maybe even the larger part, hard to say. And that um, Alexander is wanting to gather the people to have some sort of synod or something like that to vote to condemn Arius. And that there's this sort of, I don't know, what you might call a theological purity test at work, where um, he's wanting all of the um, deacons and uh, presbyters in his jurisdiction to sign, I don't know, kind of like a statement of faith, I guess you could call it, or a creed that's in condemnation of Arius. So th this is sort of like setting the stage for all these things that are about to happen. Um, so there is this gathering of bishop, a gathering of clergy underneath the Sea of Alexandria, and they condemn Arius. And what Arius does is Arius immediately contacts a bunch of his important friends in the empire. Um, among these are Eusebius of Caesarea, right, who we talked about last episode, who's a very important, well-connected, well-educated scholarly bishop in what we would call modern-day Israel. He contacts Eusebius of Nicomedia, a different Eusebius. There are multiple Eusebiuses, and it's kind of confusing. Um, Eusebius of Nicomedia, right? Nicomedia, Nicomedia, Nicomedia is the current capital while Constantinople is being built, right? Rome's no longer the, con the capital, but Constantinople has to finish construction before it gets to be the capital. So Nicomedia is the temporary imperial residence. It's in Western Turkey. Um, and a bunch of other people. And Arius is like, hey, do you guys see what this Alexander is saying? He's saying, you know, that, that the son and the father are basically equal and co-eternal and all these things. And you and I know that this isn't the right thing. So, so Arius is reaching out to his allies. And it's interesting, how does he already have these allies, right? You know, is he well-traveled? How does he have know these people well enough to reach out to them already? And uh, one possible explanation is that these were all fellow students of Lucian of Antioch. 
who so basically his schoolmates maybe that had gone on to become important you know churchmen in other parts of the empire that could very well be the case that he's reaching out to his old classmates who agree with him and that he can trust agrees with him so basically you know arius is gathering his team and alexander is gathering his team as well and it's sort of expanding beyond just alexandria right in order to figure out who's going to win this theological battle and so this has been a theological battle in the past but it it didn't it didn't get the kind of prominence it finally does today for probably a lot of reasons um one is your buddy paula samosada no one liked him Okay. Well, he still has his supporters. <laughs> yeah, but not many. And more importantly, it's sort of like, yeah, you and I may disagree on the, you know, the subordination of the father and the son. But we we agree that the son is God, okay? So Paul goes, and all of a sudden now Constantine has ro the Roman peace going yeah. except he doesn't have the peace he thought he was going to have because he's now got quibbling not quibbling theologians who have their elbows out playing pretty hardball politics there was violence in alexandria over this okay yeah so what we have i think just to delineate right so in essence maybe to simply state it orthodox trinitarian theology believes that there's an equality between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simplistically. Right. That, simplistically. And okay. that they're co-eternal, right? Correct. And that they all have the same kind of divinity. Yeah. Arian, Arius takes the Father and says he is preeminent. He's ineffable. He's God. And he begot the Son who then became a God. Or Well, he, I, I think that I would say that Arius thinks that the Son is divine, but it's a different kind of divinity than God. Right. So, right, like God the Father is, we'll, we'll go into this in more detail, but it is important enough to understand this part of the story, right. that God is utterly unique, right, and has always existed as self-existent, unbegotten, right. unsourced, etc. Yeah. And then sort of the first thing that happens is that the Father begets the Son, Right. right? At, by his own will and his own decision. And this happens like in time, right? There's a sequence of events. Right. And probably we, we don't we don't have a ton of writings, but probably also the son begets the Holy Spirit, right? There's probably a, a, like a Russian doll thing, right? And, yeah. and that's not unique, right? We saw that in Novation. We saw that in Tertullian. We saw that in a bunch of people where it's like, Father, Father begets the Son, Son begets the Holy Spirit, right? You know, right. like a Russian doll thing, and that there's a clear hierarchy and a clear sequence and a clear differentiation in what kind of divinity they have. And I would argue that comes, we need to stop here and be very clear that the world as it was constituted at that time was bathed in Platonism. Yeah, yeah, Okay. especially Alexandria. Yeah, but I mean bathed in it. Because if we look at all the early church fathers, whether they liked Plato or not, they were influenced by Plato. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So 
we have to understand, you know, understand Plato's influence indirectly into theology. And so you struggle with for you struggle with the idea that God is ineffable. There's nothing, you know, we can use Anselm's ontological argument. There's nothing higher than you can. And so now all of a sudden we have Jesus and the Holy Spirit. What do we make of that? Okay. Right. Is is the Son ineffable and ineffable in the same way the Father is? Or is only the Father the ineffable one? Right. right? Correct. And the problem by this time, the person who had the most influence on the reading of Scripture, Paul, has been way out of the project for 300 years. Because it would have been interesting to see what a Pharisee would have said about the arguments of Platonism, right? Right. Remember, well, he, tried... he would have said, obviously, Paul Samosata was right, you silly people. Why are you guys arguing about this? You and you, Arius and Alexander, you're both wrong. Right. <laughs> I think Paul would say Paul, Paul Samosata is wrong, but that's just me. Okay. <laughs> However, I, I will say, so what we have is Arius does believe that Jesus is divine. I, I would say that Paul Samosata did not believe Jesus was divine. Okay. Or, or, well, Paul Samosata would have said that Jesus became uh, a participant in divinity after his glorification, after right. his ascension to heaven. But Arius is saying, no, that's wrong. He was divine before all that. Right. The first thing that happened in history was the begetting of the Son. And right. he was divine, but it was like uh, second-class divinity, right? God the Father has first-class divinity, and the Son has second-class divinity. Right. But that's been true for all time, right? Which is interesting to me, right? Because I will tell you, I don't agree with Arius, but I would say that if you scratch the average Christian in the West, you would get Arius. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? You would get Arius. Uh, um, and so w my disagreement with Arius would go right to John. In the beginning was the word, okay? And the beginning, God is timeless. He's without time, right? So what, what Arius wants to do is bind God in a time. Well, the first thing that happened was Jesus was begotten in time. Well, no, that's not what it says. It's in the beginning. Here's the word. Okay. The, I would say the author, who's thoroughly Jewish, John, Jacob, sorry, he was thoroughly Jewish, is saying before time, there was the Father, Son, and by implication, the Holy Spirit. Okay. So, but Arius, and I'm, I try to be as sympathetic to Arius as possible, right? Arius is bathed in Platonic philosophy. At the beginning of our discussion, actually, your you know your outline of this, you have you have Arius, who is a well-trained theologian and a well-trained philosopher, and that the philosopher is saying, whoa, 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 and the theologian, hold it. There's got to be a hierarchy here. And the hierarchy is God the Father. 
and the son is a bit lower than God the Father. And then, of course, you can go through Scripture where Jesus very clearly states that the Father is greater than I. Right. Right. Um, the Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Right. Yeah. No one, and this is also from the first chapter of God of John. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He makes Him known. Right. So you have an invisible God who no one has seen, and right. you have a begotten God uh, that is different from the invisible God. And the begotten God makes the invisible God known to us, right? That's Arianism, mm -hmm. right? Although I should say that's John 1, 18, and there is a manuscript discrepancy. Some manuscripts say the only begotten son who is mm -hmm. in the bosom of the Father. I think that's actually the correct version of that verse. But Arius would have read the verse that said the only begotten God. But there are different manuscripts, although it's notable that the manuscripts that say only begotten God are from Alexandria and the manuscripts that say only begotten son are from elsewhere. But anyway, right. so, you know, like, yeah, that, we, we could pile up a whole bunch of verses on either side of this thing. And that's exactly what they did do. Right. Arius had his verses. Right. Alexander had his verses. And, and they would each say, well, what about this? But, 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 but what? OK, yeah. So what? But what about this? Right. And so, so that's sort of the conflict. And um, later on, I think I'll play a couple clips. Oh, that but, we all, but we all agree that Paul Samosata should not be in the church. Well, so let, let me say something about that. So, like, I would say that there are a couple strains of Christology in the early church. Mm -hmm. There's sort of what you could call Paul Samosataism, right, which is Jesus is a man, right, right. who begins to exist in Mary. Yeah. And then gets exalted to heaven, which is a place where he wasn't before, right? He is he is purely a human. He is sort of the embodiment of God's logos, but the logos is an abstract power of God or something like that, that is like at work in the human, right? Yeah. And then the human, you know, gets exalted to a certain kind of divine status afterwards. But, right? but respectfully... That even the earliest church father that we studied that had writing was Justin Martyr, yeah. who called Jesus the second God. So already right. by, by that time, there was this belief that Jesus was God. Okay, there's a hierarchy. It wouldn't be what we would recognize today as a Trinitarian theology, but Justin Martyr was very clear that Jesus was a second God. Where Paul of Samosata would, I would you agree, would not have said that. Correct. Paul okay. Samosata would not have liked the phrase second God, mm -hmm. right? So you have human who gets exalted Christology. And then I would say you have a second family that's like Logos incarnation Christology, right? Where there's the Logos, which is, you know, begotten of God at some point or kind of or somehow. We, uh, and then, you know, becomes a human, lives as the human Jesus and then goes back to heaven. There are Gnostic Christologies, right, where Jesus never really becomes a human. He's just some sort of heavenly or angelic visitor who never really takes on human flesh because human flesh is evil, right? And so you have to have a – he's basically a heavenly messenger who looks human but isn't actually human. And then another Christology would be what's called Sabellianism or what we would call modalism, where Jesus was actually an incarnation of the one God. Right. And they were criticized for being patripassionists. Right. The father suffered. 
right? So there's modalism where there is no distinction between God the Father and God the Son, really. They're just kind of aspects of the same one God, and that's what's become incarnate, right? And we saw um, Tertullian write letters against that. Novation wrote a letter against that, right? So there are those four families, right? Human Christology, uh, incarnation of the Logos Christology, Gnostic, and then modalistic incarnation of the Father, basically, Christology. And my contention would be that both Arius and Alexander are members of the same family. They're both Logos incarnation Christologists, but they are disagreeing about the relationship between the Logos and the Father. So they are members of the same theological family tree, but they are fighting about the details within that same, you know, tradition. This is, you know, this is a, pl a fight that's really more than a theological fight. It's a, a platonic fight. It's, yeah. it's the, and what you have is you have someone who's a thoroughgoing Neoplatonist in Arius. Yes. Someone probably an Alexander who is not. Okay. Yeah. Who? I mean, obviously, I think the lo all everyone in the Logos Christology camp is somewhat influenced by Platonism, but I do think that you are right that it is very fair to say that Arius was much more directly influenced and much more loyal to, and probably more well informed by, the Neoplatonism of his time than right. Alexander was. And Alexander's kind of, you know, in the same Platonic world as Arius, but he's not as well educated or as loyal to it. And he's taking these other theological commitments that he sees in Scripture to motivate him to disagree with Arius. Right. And so what's interesting is, so when we start this fight, you have not only the two Eusebiuses, right, but you have the Libyan bishops that, Ally with Arius mostly. Ally with Arius. You have Alexandria and some of the others saying, no, this this can't hold. And finally, Constantine the Great says, all right, um, um, well, yeah, we should go. I mean, we covered some of this in our yeah. episode about Eusebius, but basically Arius is going on. Arius gets uh, excommunicated and banished from Alexandria, right. right? And so he's going on a support tour to try and find, find his friends and allies, right? And he gets a bunch of bishops, including very important ones, to write him a letter to um, his bishop in Alexandria saying, like, hey, Arius is actually okay um, you need to let him back into communion. We've decided that that his views are acceptable. And Bishop Alexander says, you know, to heck with that. I don't agree with you. I'm the Bishop of Alexandria. I get to make this decision, right? And there's a small council in 325 AD that is um, sort of like a test case where Eusebius calls a council to train, like, finally really exonerate uh, Arius. But the Alexandrian party actually had more representatives, and Eusebius gets excommunicated at his own council. We talked about that last time. Right. And so this is the stage. So, like, you know, I, I won't go into all the imperial history, but, like, 
Constantine issues the Edict of Milan in 313, but that's not the end of the fighting, right? There's some more fighting that happens after that. There's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, right, which is very famous where, you know, Constantine has the vision of, you know, in this sign, conquering the cross. And we'll talk, when we go to Constantine, we'll talk about what exactly happened there. Um, but anyway, Constantine, you know, uh, wins a battle out, right outside the city of Rome against one of his rivals and then is the sole ruler of the empire in 324, right? And so one of his first moves is like, okay, so I need to consolidate the church, right? Because the church, because Constantine is very much identifying himself with Christianity at the point, although how Christian he actually is is an interesting question. But in either case, he, he needs the, the, the support of the church. And so he has a friend named Hoysius of Cordoba, who's from Spain, a Western bishop, who's like, hey, um, uh, Constantine, there's this fight going on in Alexandria over this um, presbyter. Um, you kind of need to pay attention to this thing. And so Constantine sends a letter that's basically like, hey, guys, stop fighting, get along, get over it. It sounds like a really trivial dispute, in my opinion. You're fighting over matters that are disputable. Just shut up and get along, okay? <laughs> right? And that uh, does not have its desired effect. It's, let's stop there and give Constantine some credit, right? If you and I were to sit down, okay, not with our audience here, Anselman and everyone else, okay, the average Christian, they would sit there and say, what are we fighting about? Yeah. Okay? The average Christian would say, what are we fighting about? You both believe Jesus is divine. Okay. Right. You both believe he's the logos who existed before creation, creation. who became right. incarnate okay. and saved us. So, like, whether he was eternal or whether he, you know, was begun of the Father at the first beginning right. of time, what's the difference? Yeah. Do you believe that you were saved by grace of Jesus' <laughs> death on the cross? Yes. Okay. What? Again, I, I, I'm trying to steal, man. Mm -hmm. it, pretty easily, Constantine. Constantine isn't a dummy. He's a very smart right. man. Yes. He's looking at this and saying. We're having a fight over how many angels are on the head of a pin. Yeah. And I've got bigger fish to fry here. I have a an empire to consolidate. I you know, when we read Augustine City on the Hill, where he makes fun of all the Roman gods, right? Constantine basically sees now one god really works a lot better. Then all the the god of the, the god of the gate, the god of the the toilet, the god of the the door, right? Okay, it's exhausting to have so many gods. We have that today in our society today. People are exhausted because they have too many gods. Yeah, well, you guys have a saint of the doorknob and a saint of the door hinge, and it. But the saints are always see. This is what happens when I'm dealing with a heretic. The saint always points us to Jesus. Okay. Yeah. Well, who does Jesus point you to? To the Father. <laughs> okay. So what exactly is the relationship between the Father and the Son? Right. So so anyway, so Constantine is, you know, understandably impatient to yeah. learn about this dispute, which to him seems like over trivial questions Correct. that could be, you know, it's like, okay, you guys can disagree about those things, but disagree about it in a quiet room. Yeah. The average person doesn't need to hear about this, like, you know, and, and stop fighting, you know, let Arius back in and Arius, you know, be cooperative with your bishop and like, <laughs> I don't need this problem yeah. right now, it, is it, Constantine. Yeah. Let's stop with Arius for a second. 
Arius was the Martin Luther of his day. I, I, I think that's actually a very reasonable historical comparison. When you pushed him, he pushed back, okay? Where Eusebius, a Caesar era, would, okay, let's, I mean, we saw what he did. He danced around on this thing. Well, yeah, what happened at the Council of Nicaea was really my idea, okay? Mm-hmm. Sort of, he, he did what a good politician does. There's the bandwagon, I'm getting on it, and I'm leading it. Okay, before it leaves without me. And so, but Arius is not like that. Arius is Martin Luther. It's like, no, here's my belief. I'm not going anywhere. I hate cameras. Okay, sorry about that. (laughs) Um, And I'm going to fight. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to stand where I think the truth is like, I don't care what my bishop tells me. I don't care what the emperor tells me. I I have uh, I am standing for what I believe the truth to be. Here I stand. I can do no other. Arius was very similar to to Martin Luther in that stubborn individualized commitment to what he thought was true. Right. No matter how much pressure you put on him, I would argue that. What happened? He has to understand very clearly that the bishop of his diocese, the see, has the ultimate authority of what's taught and not taught. Especially back then, when really the bishops were the power in the church. So, well, but um, I think one of Arius's heroes is Origin of Alexandria. And another thing that we could say is that Arius's theology is really almost identical to Origen. Um, I think there are a couple differences, but but Origen was a popular teacher in Alexandria who was teaching some things that his bishop disagreed with, and his bishop made him leave. And so where did he go? He goes to Caesarea. Right. What does Arius do? Arius is a popular teacher in Alexandria who's probably more well-educated and more philosophically sophisticated than his bishop. He's teaching things his bishop disagrees with. The bishop kicks him out. Where does he go? He goes to Caesarea, right? right? It's the exact same pattern, and I bet that was even somewhat intentional. And and that he's alluding to... Now we have have a difference. Now we have a church that is not under... Persecution. Persecution. And now what's happening is... The bishops are have now say, "Hey, I don't have to worry about Roman, the Roman Empire on my left side, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I, I'm taking all. In essence, I think what the bishops of each city were saying: What happened, Bishop Alexander? When every all the other bishops said, "Hey, let Arius back in," included Constantine, right? Hey, uh, do you know who I am? I'm the bishop. Do you understand church governance? Mm-hmm. I, I'm the final authority here. Okay. Now, I, I, I mean, might have said that arrogantly, but I'm the final authority. And that's great. You know, now I think we could see what the Eastern Church did about guys like Alexander. The emperor became the final authority. Right. So now, the we, West, now we should go go ahead. West, the, 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 the Pope becomes the final authority, right? He brings kings to heal in the West. And I believe that the, the, the emperor in the East brings bishops to heal in the East. 
Well, yeah, and and so this, so the the next couple of years are about to establish that precedent. Yep. So in three early three twenty five, right? Eusebius tries to gather a council to exonerate Arius with uh, enough authority to kind of have sway over Egypt, but the council does not go his way, and Eusebius actually gets excommunicated for agreeing with Arius. Right. Okay. But yeah, you know, right. You know, backfired. Um, and that taught Eusebius a lesson. And so then a couple months later, the emperor Constantine gathers the council of Nicaea, right? The first big ecumenical council. And it's at, you, it's at, um, Constantine's own summer palace, basically his lake house. And so one of the big topics, it's not the only topic, I think we might even have a full episode dedicated to the Council of Nicaea, although maybe we will have talked about it so many times we feel like we don't need to do that. But um, I think we need to go granular on Nicaea. It's a pretty big deal. All right. So then I won't cover it in too much detail now, but one of the main topics is the Arian controversy, right? And so a bunch of the bishops at the council are against Arius, but a bunch of people are for Arius. And Arius has come out and said that already he, so in the 320s AD before the council, but after the controversy has started, Arius has written a book called the, the Thalia, the Thalia, that is sort of an explanation of his theology. Um, And one of the things that he's very clear about in that book is that the father and the son are not of the same substance, Mm -hmm. right? And he's also very clear that the son came into existence at a certain time. And he's also very clear that the... um, uh, that the, uh, let's see here, that the, in a certain sense, that the son is not true God, right? Only the father is true God. So at this council of Nicaea, the Arian party basically gets outmaneuvered by the anti-Arian party. And the anti-Arian party very quickly is able to assort, assert its dominance over the language of the creed. Divine and providence. So, we would call it divine providence. Well, okay, we, 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 all right. So part of so in the in the Nicene Creed, and it should also be noted that the Nicene Creed that people recite at church is actually from the uh, Council of Constantinople in 381. So the language of the Creed in 325 from the Council of Nicaea is actually shorter and a little bit different, and so people don't actually recite the original Nicene Creed, even though it's very close. But um, but in this uh, creed from the Council of Nicaea, it says that the Son is begotten, not made, true God from true God, and consubstantial, that is homoousius, that is of the same yep. essence as the Father. And all three of those things are explicitly targeted to contradict things that Arius had written in his own theology, right? And so an effect of this council, again, we'll go into the council in more detail, probably some other episode, but suffice it to say for now that the Creed of Nicaea and how exactly it came to say that and what people at that council were jostling, we'll get into that some other time. But the anti-Aryan party kind of wins um, the day at Nicaea and but a, a large number of the Arian supporters actually sign on to this creed, including Eusebius of Caesarea himself. But Arius, because he's the sort of guy who sticks to his guns, 
although we'll actually get back to that later. But Arius sticks to his guns and won't recite the creed. So Arius and like two or three of his closest supporters get excommunicated by the Council of Nicaea and are sent into banishment, right? So it looks like a victory for the anti-Aryan party, a victory for Alexander of uh, Alexandria. So it, it should also be notable to say the Council of Nicaea only had 200-some bishops at it, right, and maybe some of their, you know, entourage. It wasn't super huge, right, maybe a few hundred people. But Arius himself was there, and Arius is not a bishop. Arius is probably one of the few presbyters who is there. And so Arius is having direct interaction with the emperor and having direct interaction with all these people. And he is not a bishop. But even though everyone knows that this council is in some sense about him, <laughs> right? Um, so it, it, it's unusual the, the status that Arius reaches, even though he's really just a, at the level of a priest. Mm -hmm. um, so that's an interesting thing. It should also be said that Athanasius was almost certainly not at the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius was a young guy. I think he was in his 20s at this point. He's probably back home in Alexandria taking care of Alexandria while the bishop is at the council. Alexander is the current bishop of Alexandria, and so he's there at the council. Um, I should also say that there is no good historical evidence that Santa Claus slapped Arius at the Council of Nicaea. That is a much later myth. No one appears to have slapped anyone at this council. So the idea that St. Nicholas, uh, Bishop Nicholas, slaps Arius and then like condemns him for his heresy, much later myth. Not true. <laughs> anyway, just needed to throw that out there. That's a popular myth that, that Santa Claus, basically, St. Nicholas slapped Arius at the council. I, 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 I think you've, you've popped Luke's bubble, but that's okay. Um, right. I, I popped a bunch of people's bubbles with that one. So anyway, Arius, Arius is condemned. Arius fail, uh, refuses to go along with the, the Creed of Nicaea because it is in multiple places specifically targeted to condemn the very same language that he had already professed to believe. Right. right? And so he goes into exile for a while. But um, in 327 A.D., um, uh, there is uh, Constantine's sister, Constantia, um, who had probably been taught by Eusebius and Nicomedia, um, and uh, her husband is healed from some sort of illness, and she attributes that to Eusebius and Nicomedia's um, intervention, intercession. And so she goes to Constantine and be like, hey, her, and Constantine's her, her brother. Um, hey, my, my husband was healed by this Eusebius and Nicomedia person. He's in exile right now with Arius. I think you need to let him back in. And so Arius is permitted to come back, and he has an audience with Constantine himself in Nicomedia, right, which I said is the temporary imperial capital while Constantinople is being built. Um, and Arius recites a creed, not the Nicene Creed, but he recites a creed to Arius, or to Constantine, and Constantine declares him orthodox and that he should be readmitted to communion. So two years after the Council of Nicaea, the Emperor Constantine is like, okay, good, Arius is all fine now. Because remember, Constantine's main goal is to heal divisions, right? right. So if, if Arius is repentant and has his tail between his legs, 
and is willing to go along to get along, Constantine's like, okay, great. We can bring this controversy, you know, like, you know, his goal is to bring this to an end and have everyone be at peace and unity. And so if Arius is willing to do that, you know, Constantine's like, great, let's, but Constantine is ordering this and Constantine is not a church official of any kind. He's the emperor. Right. All right. And this is starting to establish the precedent where the, the emperor has some kind of ecclesial authority. Which, by the way, in the West, is to most Christians, it's completely shocking that the emperor would have ecclesial authority. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, my argument would be that somebody has to have authority, right? Okay. Because what we've seen when we had the schism in the West is, to all my Protestant friends, everyone has authority. Okay. <laughs> everyone. And you, how is that been working out for you right now? Not too well. Okay. So oh, I don't know. know. A couple of million people in Brazil converted to Pentecostalism from uh, Catholicism in the past year. Yeah, I know. But she, Sheila Buff has now become a, a radical, radical Catholic. So there you go. Um, that one Sheila Buff. All, all, all the better. For, I'm, I'm very happy for Shia, Shia, Shia LaBeouf uh, that he has um, uh, uh, converted to Catholicism. I consider that a win. <laughs> yes. So that's a huge win. Anyways, to, to continue, okay. Um, the So I, I don't think Constantine's... Um, is doing anything out of a nefarious um, intent at all. Um, no, he, he wants the church to be healed. He wants the church to be at one. All right. So in 327, yeah. Constantine orders the Bishop Alexander mm-hmm. orders him to readmit Arius to communion. <laughs> and how do you think that goes? Right. Alexander says, uh, uh-uh, not doing it. Right. So in 328, Eusebius and Nicomedia, is reinstated as Bishop of Nicomedia, right, which is the imperial residence at the time, because of the intervention of Constantine's sister, who had reported a miracle, had had attributed a miracle to his intercession, right? Okay, so Eusebius, now back in his power, and this is not Eusebius of Caesarea, Eusebius of Nicomedia, who's an even stronger ally of Arius, gathers a council in Nicomedia, and they uh, officially reinstate Arius. They declare Arius Orthodox, and they condemn Bishop Alexander for being insubordinate to the emperor and issue a deposition of Bishop Alexander, where he is supposed to be deposed from his bishopric for refusing to go along with the orders of Constantine. Before this letter can get from Nicomedia to Alexandria, Bishop Alexander dies of natural causes. He's pretty old, right? He's like 70 or something at this time. So he dies. So very, very hastily, because people know what's about to happen, Athanasius gathers his quorum and gets himself voted like that same day as the new bishop of Alexandria. Athanasius, as we will get to, is a very feisty, very, um, uh, I don't know, shrewd. I'll go with shrewd for now, fellow. By the way, but, Sam, you're, fro- you're frozen. I'm frozen? Yep. Can you see I, me now? I, I, I see, you, see you, fine. you're frozen. Huh. That's weird. I, I yeah. see myself just fine. Yeah. I, well, wait until you, you can hear me. 
Oh, I can hear you just fine, but wait until we put this online. We've got you with your mouth wide open, your eyes bugged out. <laughs> that's okay. All right. No. Well, that's how I normally look. All right. No. So you see – all right. So Alexander gets deposed, but before he gets formally deposed, he dies. And you see Athanasius uh, appoints himself very, very quickly as the new bishop of Alexandria because he knows full well that if he waits even like a week – that the Arians are going to get control of the bishopric of Alexandria, right? So before they can dispatch people to, you know, enforce Constantine's demands, uh, Athanasius gets himself appointed. And you can imagine how well um, Constantine likes Athanasius because of this action. Constantine, for the record, does not like Athanasius, uh, but we'll get, we'll have, Probably multiple episodes on Athanasius, so I'll leave that part of the story off for now. All right. Yeah. Here's the difference between Origin and Arius. Origin just got the heck out of Dodge, okay, yeah. and basically went to another diocese and said, "I'll I'll, I'll stay here permanently." Okay. Yeah. You know, he he and Bishop Demetrius didn't get along too well. All right, fine. If this guy's going to give me a headache, I'll just stay here and do my work here. And yeah, Demetrius can can complain all he wants, but the bishop in in Caesar era is going to, it's basically going to say, "Yeah, well, you got nothing to do with what I want." Okay. If we wanted to be that, nice to Arius, I would say that I think one of yeah. his clear and strong desires is to return to Alexandria and go back to his job. I think that he feels some sort of pastoral responsibility and perhaps even destiny to go back to his city and to resume his post. I think that that is, I, I think that's, I, I don't know how to make sense of his I, I, actions I would, otherwise. I would, I, would, I, would, I would contend, counter argument is that he had to know that him going back was going to create division and problems. Yeah, well, all right. So division and problems are on their way. (laughs) All right, so um, Athanasius refuses to let Arius back in because Athanasius is a strong devotee of Alexander. And if Alexander disliked Arius, Athanasius despises Arius, right? He has grown up in the shadow of this Arian controversy this whole time and is a strong, devoted vitriolically hating Arius, um, you know, uh, bishop. All right, so for a couple years, Arius probably is living in Libya because he's been officially reinstated, but Athanasius is refusing to go along. And I think Constantine's attention turns elsewhere, right? I think Constantine gets distracted and sort of forgets about this issue for a while. So... From about 328 to 332, Athanasius is officially supposed to be letting Arius back into communion, but is refusing, and Arius is hanging out in Libya, his hometown, right? Kind of waiting for something to happen, right? Um, so so the, those couple years are a little bit quiet. All right, in 332, Arius writes a letter to Constantine asking for clarity on the status of his readmission basically being like hey 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 constantine i've been kind of waiting four years athanasius isn't listening to what you last said to him could you do something about it 
And this is not the, the, the sort of thing that Constantine appreciates. Constantine does not like being told what to do or does not like people grabbing his attention when his attention is on something else. And he writes a scathing letter back to Arius that is basically saying that, how dare you, you know, bring this up to me? You know, um, don't you know that all the problems that you've caused me? Um, and he even quotes the Sibylline Oracles, which is a pagan body of prophecy, saying the Sibylline Oracles had prophesied that great calamity would befall Libya. And I think that they might be talking about you. And if you get me more angry, what those sibling oracles predicted would happen to Libya, I will make happen to you and all the people that you love. So don't you dare write to me again, you insolent, you know, SOB, you know, basically. So that, so that doesn't work well for Arius. And so he gets uh, excommunicated again. And that is when Constantine orders his works to be burnt, right? In, in response to Arius asking for clarification on the situation in 332. All right. Okay, so, Const so Arius gets banished again and is excommunicated again and is out of favor with the emperor. And Athanasius is probably breathing a sigh of relief now that Arius did something so stupid and that it went so badly for him. All right, okay, fast forward a couple more years. All right, in 335, there is a council in Jerusalem for the dedication of a new church. And Constantine is there. And Arius is at that council and presents a creed to um, Constantine. And Constantine once again accepts Arius as orthodox and commands that he be readmitted. Arius personally, or Constantine personally writes to Athanasius telling him that Constantine is very glad to have received Arius's new confession of faith. And I'm sure that you, Athanasius, will be very glad to hear that Arius is now to be readmitted to communion and that this whole dispute can finally come to an end. Oh, Athanasius, surely you won't disagree with me, Constantine, you know, ordering this about. And so um, Athanasius immediately sails to Constantinople to plead his case before the emperor um, to say, no, you can't do this. You can't make me readmit Arius. And how well does Constantine respond to unsolicited visits? Uh, not very well. So Constantine goes ballistic at Athanasius and orders Athanasius into exile. Um, we'll cover Athanasius's life in more detail. He gets exiled like four times or something like that. This is the first of his many exiles and excommunications. So Constantine excommunicates Athanasius orders him shipped off, shipped off to, I think, Germany. I think he goes to Trier, Germany, or something like that. Um, and so, and then they put an Aryan... There's nothing, there's nothing worse than being sent to Germany. <laughs> nothing. Which is, which is the frontier at this point in time. All right. So then well, they put, like, a... a... You know what? 2,000 years later, it's still pretty bad, especially right now. Since they're not going to have any heat this winter, heat or food, which one do you want? Yeah, well, they had even less natural gas back in 336 A.D. All right, so um, so they put in a puppet bishop, Lord. right? So Athanasius is exiled. They put in a puppet bishop in Alexandria. And Arius makes a triumphal return to Alexandria, a city that he might not have been to in over a decade, 
right? Because of all this stuff. And there are violent riots between the supporters of Athanasius and the supporters of Arius. I don't know how many people died, but it could be hundreds or even thousands, right? Like, like, you know, violent street battles between people that are happy to have Arius back and people that are the opposite, right? And it is, yep. I, I mean, it's ugly, right? I don't know how else to describe this. This is, this is not Christianity at its best, right? But you can at least understand where these tempers are, are coming from. All right, so there are these violent street battles, and Constantine calls Arius back to Constantinople, right? Mainly to just try and cool down the situation. Not because he's mad at Arius or not because Arius is being insubordinate or something, but just being like, okay, wait a minute. All right, maybe this is a bad idea. Maybe we, let, let's just cool the temperature of the situation. Hey, Arius, come back to Constantinople. Constantinople is finished enough for it to be the imperial capital by this point in time. All right, so Arius is in Constantinople with Constantine. And he apparently goes to Constantine and recites the Nicene Creed, word for word. There are disputes about whether he did this in good faith or not. Athanasius agrees that he recited the Nicene Creed, but he thinks that he had his real creed in his back pocket or something and was sort of like, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudging, or had his fingers crossed or something like that while he was reciting the Nicene Creed. But other people are like, no, he actually did just recite the Nicene Creed. So what's going on? Did Arius have a change of heart? Did I, I, I mean, I honestly think that Arius is sick of this whole shenanigans and is willing to try and make peace, right? I think that Arius probably was traumatized to some degree to see the violence in Alexandria at his sake. I don't think Arius wanted that to happen, right? I think Arius, you know, is is sick of all of this craziness at this point in time. He's also about 80 years old, right? Um, and so in Constantinople to Constantine, Arius recites the Nicene Creed. Okay, so Constantine orders that the next Sunday, this, so this confession of the Nicene Creed happens on Saturday. Constantine tells the Bishop of Constantinople, who is an anti-Arian, who is a, uh, an ally of Athanasius, tomorrow Arius is going to church and you are going to give him communion, right? And so that night, on the toilet, Athanasius, or not Athanasius, excuse me, Arius, dies from some sort of excessive diarrhea or something very unpleasant like that. And his enemies say, there you go, judgment of God. You tried to force Arius back into communion. God prevented it from happening. Alternative theory, some of Arius's enemies in Constantinople poisoned him. And to prevent the sacrilege, I guess you could say, of Arius being readmitted to communion. And his symptoms are certainly similar to what happens to someone who's poisoned. But it's also possibly something that could happen to someone who's 80 years old. Also, if you're under the judgment of God, who knows anything can happen, I guess. So to this day, it is not clearly well known whether Arius died of divine judgment or poisoning. 
And I, well, I have my suspicions of which of those two things it actually was. But Arius ends his life the same day he had recited the Nicene Creed, this very creed designed to oppose him. He recites it to Constantine in Constantinople and dies that night. So, so he ended his life doctrinal. But not, he didn't get to take communion. True. See, if they had Saturday Night Mass, he would <laughs> I mean, it's an amazing story, right? Like, what a crazy not life. Me. You know, like for the most, the first 60 years of your life, you know, that not much is happening. And then from age 60 to age 80, you're basically the center of the entire, you know, empire's attention and fighting because you think that there was yep. a time when the sun was not. And the first major church council in all of history is about you. And there are all of these edicts back and forth and street riots about you. And then, like, like honestly, I, I, I think that Arius was, was like ready. I, why would he recite the Nicene Creed? You could okay. So there is the he was doing it in bad faith, and then God judged him for it. Take that's Athanasius's explanation. Maybe that's true. I don't think so. I think that he was but trying to bring an end to the controversy and trying to get along. I, I really do. And then he was assassinated for it. I think that's more likely. Well, this has been an interesting discussion about probably the, one of the most controversial church fathers in Christian history. Um, and I think that he's going to play a role in our future discussions about Athanasius. Constantine and the church going forward because the Neo-Aryans become even much like the 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 Calvinists become even more strident than Arius ever was. Right, just in the same way Calvinists became more Calvinist than Calvin and formed a faction. Correct. So I right. mean, so Arius dies, you know. And one would have to say that maybe Calvinism is a greater heresy than Arianism, but hey, that's just me. <laughs> so Arius, so after Arius dies, right, in the couple years mm -hmm. thereafter, um, uh, there are multiple, Constantine will die, I think, a couple years after Arius, right? And he is succeeded by his relatives, that had been taught by Eusebius of Nicomedia, right? I alluded to earlier that Constantine's sister was a big fan of Eusebius and Nicomedia, who is a strong Arian ally. So the son of, or I forget if it's a son or a nephew or what have you, who becomes emperor next is a strong Arian ally. And for multiple decades, there are Arian councils that come to Arian conclusions and issue Arian creeds in repudiation of the Council of Nicaea. And there's fighting back and forth for a long time. There's actually a, an Aryan missionary who converts um, the Germans, who converts uh, the Goths, some of your barbarian ancestors, right, to an Aryan faith. And for multiple centuries, the Nicene, Nicene Orthodoxy is the position of the empire. And the Aryan position is the creed of the barbarians. 
right? And that, that fighting will go on for a couple hundred years. There are probably even Aryans into like the 8th or ninth century, right, who are still in recalcitrant opposition to the Nicene faith. And so this controversy that you might think would come to an end with Arius reciting the Nicene Creed to Constantine in Constantinople goes on for another four or 500 years. And the body count yep. is a lot. So, man, it, it's a crazy story. I, I don't, it's a crazy story. <laughs> It is, and it's uh, one that uh, uh, needs to be told and uh, interacted with. I think that, uh, you know, quite frankly, um, it uh, it's hard to understand in some ways. In other ways, um, it's, uh, I think that in my estimation, Alexander was ultimately right. And not just because he won, but because ultimately you can't, once you say that you have a straight God here and a God here, we're going right into pantheism, baby. And that's where Arius leads you. It leads you to pantheism, even if that's what they don't, they don't mean to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'll actually Anyways, argue... We should go, but I actually think that kind of what ends up happening is that the final version of yep. the faith is basically a compromise between Arius and Alexander. And it's not actually that Athanasius and Alexander win because Arius had too many people that agreed with him. I think that really the final thing is that they get rid of the extremists on both sides and, and try and compromise in the middle but how can you compromise between two mutually exclusive positions? Well, it's a mystery. Yep. And I think that that is basically the doctrine of the Trinity is a compromise between Arius and Alexander. Well, we will. <laughs> that doesn't talk make about any that sense that for the record, but <laughs> no, yeah. we'll talk. About I think Athanasius. we need to talk about that with Athanasius because that that. That we could get a lot, you know, we're at the end, but you just brought something up that needs to be fully discussed at another time. Yeah. All right. Well, we should uh, bring this one to a halt, but I, 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 I hope that we did the truth some favor today and that I hope that we clarified yep. what's a very misunderstood period of history. All right. So, Sam, as usual, it was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. And, uh, I look forward to the comments and all my uh, my detractors uh, telling me I'm wrong again about something. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> all right.